This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. This is a show I've been looking forward to for a while. I just got the book in my hands. It's called The Whole Mystery of Christ, Creation as Incarnation and Maximus the Confessor. Now, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that I love the fathers. Uh, A convert to the faith, I came in in 2011 from the Methodist Church, and I largely was unaware of the fathers of the church until such time as I became Catholic. And then uh, there was this whole world that was opened up. Like somehow there was this belief that, you know, you had the Bible and then everything stopped. People, you know, I know that the people were writing the Bible, but after they wrote the Bible, they stopped writing. Uh, and then, and then eventually the, the church started writing again, you know, around the 1500s. That was the idea in the Protestant church that I grew up in. And so this, this whole idea that those people had the seamless transition from writing a scripture, to writing to one another in the churches, and to continuing to write about and explore the faith in a way that was consistent in in many ways uh, with the culture of the time of Christ. Now, that's one of the reasons that we lean on the fathers is because they are writing without having to translate from one culture to another. They lived in that culture, and they can then, uh, as we read them, help us to unpack and understand the the world of the first, second, third, fourth century uh, more clearly. And so today we're going to be talking about this, this new book. Um, it's on Notre Dame Press. Again, The Whole Mystery of Christ, Creation is Incarnation and Maximus the Confessor. This is written by Jordan Daniel Wood. Uh, Jordan, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So you've got a couple of other things that are in the works right now. You're uh, continuing to translate Maximus You uh, for CUA. I'm assuming that's the Fathers of the Church series. Beautiful, yes. lovely, my favorite series in the world. Uh, you're also doing some stuff for uh, Wiffenstock, the Cascade imprint uh, on Maximus the Confessor as well, probably a little bit more popular level. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think they're, right now the working title is A Shadow of Things to Come, Christian Life with Maximus the Confessor. So. That one will be pitched a little bit more in, a, in terms of summary and a little more practical. Now, we don't often hear about Maximus in the West. He might show up in a litany here and there, but for the most part, this is a saint that is very important and popular in the Eastern Church. Uh-huh. So you're a Latin Catholic. I'm a Latin uh-huh. Catholic. Why should we be concerned with the Eastern way of thinking in the Church Fathers, specifically with Maximus the Confessor? Yeah, so I think generally the the quickest answer to that is is uh, Vatican II for us is explicitly laid out um, um, in several different documents. Uh, but I'm specifically thinking of Redintegratio Unitatis, mm-hmm. and especially around like section 17, I think it was. There's a kind of a, an amazing uh, moment where the document says that some of the central mysteries of the Christian faith. It says something like it stands to reason that both sides, West and East, you know, and it's playing with the two lungs uh, metaphor throughout, will have glimpsed aspects of these deep, obviously infinitely deep mysteries uh, better than than the other. And that's kind of a that's kind of a, a moment, I think, of humility and like self-awareness, but also of hope and promise. So very broadly, I would say the Vatican II sort of has laid out both in what it says and then sort of in uh, some of the major figures that have exemplified that uh, approach that, you know, the Eastern tradition is just as as much a part of our tradition 
even if we've been estranged from it in various ways. And so it's, it's high time to explore and to gain sustenance by the Holy Spirit through that part of the tradition as well. And I think Maximus in particular, you know, there's several, uh, there were several Catholic thinkers in the 20th century who already noticed, and not least of which was Hans-Roth von Balthasar, his famous book, mm-hmm. Cosmic Liturgy, the, the Universe According to Maximus Confessor. Um, they noticed from the start that Maximus is one of those fathers, and and really, I think, even more broadly, one of these thinkers and figures in the Christian tradition that kind of, it, it does stand out as, as an incredible mind of synthesis. Mm-hmm. And I, I think for a lot of reasons I've thought about, and I'm still thinking about even to this day, the kind of um, return to Maximus in particular, the, the past hundred years or so in the West, I just think at a time of fragmentation and a lot of different, uh, whether you're talking about different, you know, sciences or disciplines or polarization in various fields, you know, or uh, dimensions of society, et cetera, there's a sense of uh, overwhelming, it's just all too daunting, it's all too much. And I think those sorts of times in history, uh, these thinkers like St. Maximus, who seem to have the incredibly capacious, very expansive spirit and mind in tune, rooted in the tradition, but also really creatively receiving the tradition, deepening it, those sorts of minds, those figures stand out. And I think that, you know, I would, if I could be so bold as to claim that, um, you know, I think Providence uh, sort of arranges things such that those figures are found at the right time in the right place or rediscovered for for, for some of us. So I, I would say that's why a lot of thinkers like Balthazar, uh, Saul and Maximus, so particularly um, promising figure to return to and learn from in our time. Yeah. So we've just come through the season of the church year where we explore the mystery of the incarnation, that God uh, became man in Jesus Christ uh, and had this hypostasis, right, between his between the human and the divine in order to, to uh, allow our nature as a human nature to be able to to coexist and, and share, be sharers, as as the scriptures say, in the divine nature, this theosis, this deification that they talk about in the West, in the East so often. Uh, but you're taking us even a step further, uh, and and Maximus is taking us even a step further, saying that not only did Christ come as an, in an incarnational way, God becoming man, not only does that incarnation continue through the church the body of Christ continued here on earth. But you're saying that throughout the whole of creation, we experience some of the incarnation of Christ. I'm just taking that from the title. So help me understand a little bit more clearly, what is Maximus' assertion and what are you asserting that he says? So, yes, so that, that, that takes us straight to the heart. I mean, I think, um, so Maximus's assertion, I think if I could put it most briefly, is not so different than, say, Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, where after Paul has just done, you know, one of those uh, vice lists and bury and sever and bury all of these things, wickedness, greed, which is idolatry, etc. Well, by the end, he gets to that pericope. He says, in that state, Christ is in and is all things. Yes. I mean, that's, just, that's just straight scripture. Or we could go to, to Ephesians 1.10. In him, all things in heaven and earth have, have been recapitulated, have been summed up, brought together, unified, right? Or we could go to, you know, actually, I always point this out, Ephesians 2, 10, 
says that you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, you know, et cetera. But that first part is usually, we skip to the second part in order to fight about right. faith and works. <laughs> but uh, but what about that first part? What is that that claim that you were created in Christ Jesus? So what I think Maximus is doing with these verses uh, in his mind, with a whole bunch of resources from the tradition already up to that time, he's, by the way, 6th, 7th century. Mm-hmm. So he's sort of at the pinnacle of, of what we would consider patristic tradition, patristic area. He's kind of receiving... I mean, we've already had five ecumenical councils. You know, you've had you've had the Cappadocian Fathers. You have the Philokalia tradition already very clear, the uh, ascetic tradition. Uh, you know, rich and, and developed. You've got um, you've got uh, yeah, uh, all these different resources. So he's pulling on all of them, and I think what he is saying, and this is another reason, by the way, that I think he's so useful for us today in this world where we learn ever more and more about the cosmos, the ever expanding horizons of our knowledge of physics, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, Maxus obviously doesn't, is not privy to that, but he has what, what a lot of people would call a cosmic Christology. And there's many ways to do that. There's many versions of that. I think Maximus, is, the heart of his is, uh, this comes in a work called Questions and Responses to Thalassius, which are actually just questions about scripture, difficulties in scripture. And Thalassius is an abbot, a monk who's asking Maximus, another monk, hey, how do we understand these? And he's speaking, in one part, part he speaks about this is question 60, the mystery foreknown from before the ages. And, you know, he says, who foreknows this? And what is this mystery? Maximus says the mystery is, is the incarnation, mm-hmm. the hypostatic union of divine and created nature in the person of Christ was foreknown from before all the ages. And in fact, he says it is the preordained goal and ground and goal of all of creation. He says, quote, all of the ages and all of the beings within those ages have received their beginning and their end in Christ. That's like a very elaborate way of saying what Colossians 3.11 already said. We, right? I think we, we see this also in Romans, the, the, we, in him we live and move and have our being. Exactly. Or, or two chapters before in Colossians 1.27, this is the mystery of Christ, Christ in you. This is the mystery, Christ in you. And so, um, yeah, so I think, so one quick way to put it would be that Christ, I like to use this image, you know, if you drop a pebble in the water, you got sort of this ever-expanding rings mm-hmm. uh, going outward, ripples, right? And I think we typically, and very intuitively and naturally, think of creation as like the first part of the drama, like a, a, for an initial act of God who calls forth from the dark abyss everything out of nothing, right? And it sets like the stage for the drama of human history. You read about that in the Bible, et cetera, et cetera, right? Maximus, I think, if we think with him deeply enough and we take seriously those verses we might otherwise sort of gloss over as just, you know, nice sort of ornate speech, he thinks that the that, that Christ himself in the middle of history is like the dropping of the pebble or the act of creation from nothing, which we assume must appear at the beginning of history, say of the cosmic history or however, however you work that out. Uh, but, but there's really no reason why it has to appear. It's emergence. It's first emergence has to appear at the beginning. It could be in the end. And it seems like the new Testament who says things about Christ, like he is the firstborn of all creation. Right. Or, or he himself says in revelation chapter three, I am the first of God's works. Now that doesn't not an Aryan thing, right? Right. right. Not an Aryan thing, but this is the this is the amazing synthetic power of Maximus receiving the tradition. By the time you get to him, you never say Christ is simply a creature. 
or even the highest creature. That would be an error. But you do say he is created, according to, say, for example, Lateran Synod 649. It says that in the canons, which Max was probably actually authored some of that. Is he was in he was in the West at that time. So he, he may have even composed those in Greek and they were translated into Latin for the Acts. But nevertheless, you, you say in, in, the, in that synod, it says he is created and uncreated, mm-hmm. right? He is human, which, which by nature is created from nothing. That's He has the same humanity you and I do. And yet he's also God and uncreated, and he is both at once. He is the oneness of the two. He is the union of the two. He himself is what recapitulates, what sums up all of those things, heaven and earth, in himself. And so if creation... If the very ground and goal of creation is nothing less than that union, then its real first emergence, as paradoxical as it sounds, I admit it, it's very counterintuitive in a way, that actually emerges in the middle of cosmic space-time, in the middle of history, like that pebble falling in, and it ripples outwards throughout space-time, even to us now. We might just call that the body of Christ, you know, to the Eucharist. We, we've watched enough uh, time travel movies. I think we can wrap our heads around this, right? <laughs> yes. uh, you, you see this in the book of John as well, where where it says that through Christ, all things were made, and without him, nothing that is, nothing exists that exists, right? So uh, this actually opens up an interesting possibility looking at it this way. Uh, and specifically, this comes into the philosophical side of things where we talk about God as a simple or or God as being impassable and unchangeable. If God is <laughs> the same yesterday, today, and forever, then the unfolding of human history uh, should have no effect on him because, <laughs> because he is unchangeable. And it's always, it, it's one of those uh, things that it's, it's almost impossible to wrap your mind around. It's one of those holy paradoxes. But at the same time, and this got brought up a couple of weeks ago with our guest as well, if if the incarnation was always God's plan and not a response to our sin, then all of a sudden that makes a whole lot more sense that that starting in the middle and then going to the outsides. Yes, and that's, you know, that's the kind of, there's a few points there. Uh, one I'll just briefly touch on because it could go, we could, it could take us quite a far, a long <laughs> ways. But, you know, I, the first point is right. And Maxus is also an adherent to that, right? That God is not just a finite agent among others. It's not like he just sort of haphazardly or he suffers things in the sense of something's outside of him and, and he, it, it happens to him as if he is just another uh, object in, in the, in a universe of objects. Um, but, uh, at the same time, what we, what we're really saying there, it's an initial moment. We're trying to say what he is not, mm-hmm. which is which is necessary. You have to do that. Otherwise, we're going to be confused, right? But what's kind of the marvelous thing, and this is, I do think, is a kind of, it's a c- Christian distinction, is the incarnation is just as much a revelation or you might say an affirmation of what he is really like. Even metaphysically or ontologically, not just like he's good and loving and merciful, which is all, which is true, but he is that he is a, the kind of God who can be a creature and still be God. And this is a point that Gregory of Nyssa, Saint Gregory of Nyssa, made all the way back in the Catechism Orations, where he says he uses that analogy. He says the incarnation was a greater display of divine omnipotence than create anything else in all of creation. Because it does the very thing he says, quote, we wouldn't necessarily expect the divine nature to do, 
namely condescend and become weak, finite, frail, and eventually dead. And he says, you know, Gregory says, if you, this shocks us and this makes us stand in awe, like dumbstruck, just as if you were to walk, if you walk across a, or by a flame burning upwards, you don't stop at all. That's normal. That's what fire does. It's the nature of fire to do that. But if you saw a flame burning downwards, the, the flames going down, that seems to be doing something contrary to your expectation of what, what it should be doing. And so it is when we come upon the God-man. Here is, here is the sort of God who is also human. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be, you know, when, and so this is the controversy over Theopascai, the, the one of the Holy, you know, one of the, one of the Holy Trinity suffered. That seems to be directly contrary to what you would expect of the omnipotent, impassable, divine, uncreated God. Right. And so, and so the initial moment was necessary to say God is not like just another object among objects, but actually the affirmation, which is itself the incarnation, is a still a revelation of some, something deeper, almost beyond words and concepts that he really is like, and it's disclosed to us through Christ and as Christ. And, and this is a, there's a marvelous passage where Maximus actually uses the language of Dionysius. Uh, he's famous for cataphatic and apophatic theology. And, tra- and he says, in the incarnation, God joins his transcendent negation of beings to the affirmation of his own humanity, his own flesh. You're going to have to repeat that one again. <laughs> and he says, God takes the transcendent, he joins the transcendent negation of his own, say, divinity mm-hmm. to the affirmation, you might say the revealing principle, the flesh by which we know God, right? Back to John, right? No one has ever seen God. Yeah. Right. But he himself, who res- resides in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known to us. How? Not just by what he said, but by being, mm-hmm. being the God man, his very person was itself the revelation of the sort of God God is, which is why we think from Christology, from Christ, back to things like the Trinity of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and so on. So anyway, but that's that's quite a, you know, but that's that's kind of the, the heart of Maximus, I think, is looking at the incarnation, not just as an amazing event or a nice miracle or a mere response even mm-hmm. to the fall, although there's a, certainly an aspect for Maximus, that, uh, you know, with which that they, or in which the, the the incarnation is, of course, a response. I mean, the cross is a response to sin, no question. But the fact he calls it the incarnation itself, he calls he identifies that with providence. He says the incarnation itself is that goal for the sake of which everything else exists, and which itself exists for the sake of nothing more. Hmm. So that is that is the you know fundamental purpose. You can't go any higher in God's aim for the project of creation than the incarnation itself. But that's not isolated in the middle of history, although it begins there like that pebble dropping. Yeah. It is meant to engulf, as it were, to become totally and utterly transparent to the entirety of the universe, all of creation, right? All of creation is the body of Christ. All things in heaven and on earth are summed up in him. Not just a few things or not just in one time in one place or from this point on, right? Anyway, so I could go on yeah. and on. You could tell I get excited. <laughs> if you're just joining us, we're talking with Jordan Daniel Wood about this beautiful book, The Whole Mystery of Christ, Creation as Incarnation of Maximus the Confessor on Notre Dame Press. So you bring up something and and I want to 
maybe address some objections. Let's let's be a little bit Thomistic yeah. for a second and start with <laughs> the objections. Um, mm. As we hear the words that that the incarnation is made manifest or made uh, revealed in all of creation, what distinguishes this view of incarnation from uh, a a pantheistic view of you can find God in all things and 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 all things are in God. So uh, because the words are very similar. Yes, yes. And and there's a there's a sense in which I'll sort of say uh I don't want to necessarily resist here here's what I'll say. There's a kernel of truth behind what we might consider problematic crude pantheisms of which there are many versions. I mean, it's very hard to reduce all of them to, to one label or something. Um, the fundamental difference, of course, is that Maximus always thinks through Chalcedon. He's a part of what would, would be called the Neo-Chalcedonians. They were defending the Council of Chalcedon's Christology, which certainly says that the two natures are without confusion, right? Without confusion, uh, unconfused union. So you never say, and Maximus is very clear, the created and the uncreated are never by nature identical. They're not one and the same like that. And yet, if we're going to confess that a man who was created by virtue of his humanity is also God, there must be another deeper new way in which we could perhaps begin to glimpse how they can be one in Christ without ceasing to be what they are by nature. And that one, the oneness, is nothing less than the very person of Christ, who, according to Council of Chalcedon, right, is the one Lord Jesus Christ. The two natures coming together, or he lives in two natures, comprising a single person or hypostasis. That's the, the Council's language. And so Maximus would never abide or allow for just a simple natural identity between the world and God. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, no, you never get it. And in fact, it gets, it gets even more complicated and actually kind of odder because he would, he would, he, he thinks that, um, there are, there are such a thing as phenomena in creation that are not works of God. And hmm. so this kind of, some people have worried about this, like he's almost sounding Gnostic here, you know, so now we're going the other way. Like, like if, if, if pantheism is one side of the, the continuum where everything's just collapsed together into one. Well, there's also the sort of absolute dualism of, of a Gnostic variety that says, you know, this world is almost... And Maximus, I think, is, a, again, synthetic. He's bringing what, what kernels of truth from both sides are, are there. He's bringing them together in the one word, the one seed of all things, who is the word of God, Christ. And so he thinks that, in line with St. Gregory and some others, that we can, for example, imagine ourselves falsely but and give our very life to bring certain images or self-images uh, into being, even partially. In other words, you can have an image of yourself as a, 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 in your pride. You can imagine yourself to be more than you are. Mm-hmm. And then what you do is you don't just imagine it. You try to live into it. You give your own life, your own person, your own actions, your choices, your deeds to it. And so you and you kind of partially succeed precisely because creation structure is incarnational. Every moment is like an incarnating right. a moment. Every act, every right. And so these things, he said, he says that you know uh, these things create phenomena which are not works of God. They're not willed by God because they're false. They're deceptions. And so, um, so anyway, I'm just saying he gets even wilder with that in the fourth chapter of the book. I get in much more detail on that, but. The point would be that, so on the one hand, 
Um, he he can sound very pantheistic, but that's only because he thinks that that kind of oneness is achieved not on the level of nature or essences, created and uncreated, but on the level of the person of Christ, which is a, a different, as it were, dimension to reality itself. One that we often don't think about, actually. Um, and then on the other hand, we've got the sort of very, you know, because we could falsely incarnate things, uh, you know, you you wouldn't want to assume that just because you're experiencing something that that's automatically God. Right. So there's, but there's that Ignatian God in all things still. Right. So, so th- we're, we're getting deep into theology <laughs> and philosophy here. Uh, let's, let's answer the, the perennial question. What difference does it make whether we believe A or B about incarnation? Why are we spending so much time philosophizing or theologizing about these topics? So I think there's two sorts of answers that I'll I'll suggest. One would be there is, you know, I guess I here I'm maybe a little more Thomistic. <laughs> there there is a sense in which uh, theology is a science which is speculative, mm-hmm. perhaps a, insofar as it's speculative, and this is where like Franciscans and to, you know Thomists might differ with each other. Um, there is something like an inherent beauty in just the very fact of contemplating the cosmos this way. Yeah. And that that inherent beauty, the kind of beauty of an Ephesians 1:10 or of a Colossians 3:11 and thinking through the implications is in and of itself valuable. It does something it elevates your spirit. But I also do think beyond that, that beauty is carried over and starts to inform the way you view everything. I mean, you can start thinking for example that like the Eucharist where we we gather around and we come together in the midst of mass, what you see there is the realization, right, of the bo- the body and blood of Christ is being offered to us, and we ingest it, and we become what we consume. Um, but that is, again, it's like more of those pebbles dropped in the middle of the of the ocean, and these are going to create their own ripples. Like this is this is a kind of ongoing, a bringing the end of all things into the present, in at least a partial way, in every every sacrament, every every act of taking the body and blood of Christ, because this is the goal. This is the, the destination of the world to become the, the one body of Christ. Mm-hmm. So there's that. But I also think it does at the end of the day, you know, it's kind of a Matthew 25 thing. I yeah. mean, it's right there. What did, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. It doesn't say you did to somebody that's like me. You did to something, uh, somebody that, 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 that agrees with me about everything, or that is my disciple. He says, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. Mm-hmm. So, do we, like the Benedictines, do we really believe that when you welcome somebody into your house or you come across somebody in your day-to-day who looks like they're having a tough time, do you really believe you're welcoming them as you welcome Christ himself because he is in them? Yeah. We're talking today with Jordan Daniel Wood. He's got this beautiful book on Notre Dame Press, The Whole Mystery of Christ, Creation as Incarnation and Maximus the Confessor. You can go over to undpress.nd.edu and pick it up today or wherever you find fine books. There's so much more to this conversation right after this break. But be a part of the ongoing conversation on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with Tia.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We're talking about this new book on Notre Dame Press, The Whole Mystery of Christ, Creationist Incarnation, and Maximus the Confessor. It's got all of my favorite things. It has uh, Christ, it's got mystery, it's got incarnation, and it's got church fathers. Uh, And we are here talking with the other Jordan Daniel Wood, who is a Catholic theologian, stay-at-home dad of four daughters. Uh, That's my dream job right there. Uh, (laughs) Holds a PhD in historical theology from Boston College uh, and is working on a number of other books right now. You will see his name all around, from uh, from Notre Dame Press to Catholic University of America, the Fathers of the Church series, Wiffenstock, and so much more. Uh, Jordan, thanks for being with us today. Thanks again for having me, too. So let's go to Athanasius, talking about the, the Trinity uh, and talking about there not being confusion. And at the same time, there's distinction, but there's not distinction, that, that we, we neither conflate nor confuse the parts of the Trinity. And I want to bring that language over here as well, because at the same time, we see perhaps a distinction, and maybe we shouldn't, but I'll let you uh, opine on that, <laughs> between Christ as he is revealed in the Eucharist versus Christ as he is revealed in the poor versus Christ as he is revealed in creation. And yet at the same time, those holiest saints that we look to, like Mother Teresa, did not see a distinction there. Mm. So how do we, um, how do we worship Christ as He is due, uh, and care for the poor and and creation around us, without uh, without confusing the parts or conflating the parts? There's a few things to consider, I suppose. So if you you know when we're thinking about the Eucharist. The body, the elements become body and blood of Christ. There is a kind of, um, I don't know if finality is the right word, but a sort of permanence, right? Like, in a, mm-hmm. like you, you don't have to guess whether or not that's actually the body and blood of Christ. It's right there. We believe that that is what happens. That's that's what occurs at the heart of the mass, right? And I think when you're when you introduce human human agents and the history and the becoming of creation, this is this is the other thing. I, I maybe it was as a helpful qualification here. Creation for Maximus is not simply what you see right now in front of you, all around us. This is a paradoxical state for him. In fact, in one text, he's, he compares it to a womb. That mm. Now, he also says the word is in that womb, just as he was in Mary. It's a beautiful text on uh, you know, John the Baptist leaping for joy in, in the womb of, of, of St. Elizabeth, and then whenever, whenever Mary, the mother of God, comes, right? And so there's these two wombs there, but but the the, the Saint the Saint John the Baptist sort of leaps for joy even in the womb, and and Maximus sort of re, uh, compares that, takes that image for this world that we're currently living in, which is also like he says, like a womb swathed in darkness, but where the Word Himself is, and we too can learn to leap for joy in this sort of right dark world. But the whole idea of the womb, of course, is that there's going to be a birth. Mm-hmm. And so this is where things get weird. <laughs> they get, which we, you know, we haven't got there yet. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, and I would, you know, I think some people would think, uh, you know, consuming a body and blood of God in the words of St. Ignatius, you know, is already weird. So maybe we should start to get used to this weird <laughs> stuff because it's sort of at the heart of things. But, um, but it's, uh, you know, that in a certain r- real way, this, this world and this existence we're living in is more like a womb than it is like the true birth of creation. 
Mm-hmm. Which is why, again, Christ can say of himself that he's the firstborn of creation. But of this course, is, he's not that firstborn in history, right? This is so, like a little C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia Last Battle vibe going on here. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, further up and farther in, we find the true creation. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a great text in Vigium 42 is what it's called, where it's on Christ's four births and and he's going through the bodily birth, the birth of baptism, the birth, right? He goes through all these, the resurrection, he calls that a birth. And actually, Gregory, the theologian, as he said it first, so he's riffing on something he says. Uh, and at the end of it, after he's doing this and making all these distinctions, and he says, actually, but in fact, the, these are only distinct in thought. In fact, they're one in the same birth, for Christ at least. Mm-hmm. Right, so this, he, so what, let's just take a moment and step back and say, you know, this is one of the things that's so fascinating and I think so useful about and difficult, of course, about studying Maximus is that you can't predict where he is going to go. And it's, it's very, but at the same time, there's a kind of rigor and synthesis and I, and I would dare say beauty to it all. But anyhow, so, so I would say, you know, the Eucharist differs in that way, but it, but it is, I think for Maximus, especially if you read his mystagogy, which is about the liturgy, it's, it's one of degrees, you know, and Christ, Christ is not fully in the poor person yet because that poor person isn't fully God. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring this down to not quite a base level here, but we're gonna come into pop culture for just a minute. This feels a whole lot more like the time travel in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure than it is like <laughs> Back to the Future, right? Like, yeah, I'm gonna right. think about it, and it's always been there, right? Right, exactly, right. It's not because yeah, the Back to the Future is still like a linear thing, and you're right. just sort of hopping back. Yeah, I know. And that's you know, the more I thought about with Maximus's tutelage, like under his tutelage, right. The more it's like, what's so brilliant about him is, in some ways, the things he's pointing out are pretty, pretty simple and kind of, as it were, right there in front of your face. Mm-hmm. It's just that I've never thought about it very deeply. I just say things and I say, I believe this and I say, oh, yeah, sure. Christ is the firstborn of creation. Sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Baptism is, is a new birth and I'm born from above, as it says in John 3. Well, what does that exactly mean? And that stuff, and so when you start thinking through it anyway, it takes you down interesting roads. Well, one of the things that you have attempted to do in this book is to take Maximus at his word, to believe that he actually means what he says, and to avoid some of the pitfalls of of uh, gentrifying his eighth century thought for our current day and age that we find in some of the other Maximus. How how does that play out? What does it look like to take him seriously as opposed to uh, trying to wrap him in the folds of our scholarship? So this is kind of, I'm a, I'm a convert to Catholicism as well. Um, I've been Catholic for almost eight years. Yeah. I may have, maybe might be nine. I'm sort of losing track, but, um, and I also agree. It sounds like actually a similar background to you, just from what you were saying before. Um, and the the sort of um, strange but kind of beckoning world of the fathers, which is unpredictable, which is profound um, and rich above all. It's total, totally rich in beauty. That is what attracted me to what you might say the greater tradition out of a more a tradition that was more biblicist and, and kind of primitivist. And like you said, like you, you get done with, you, you know, at the year 100, you sort of skip to the 16th century. Um, and, and for me, actually, it was even further. But uh, so I I think what it means is, uh, what, what that's kind of afforded me, that background, is that I, I honestly was reading, I didn't plan on writing anything on Maximus. He was just sort of, it was like a class I had to take. I was 
It was very, you know, seemingly happenstance, but within three weeks of just reading the words, here I am kind of naive and I'm not super well-versed in all of the different crannies, nooks and crannies of the tradition. And I'm just reading this stuff on the page and I'm just like, well, hold on a second. Mm-hmm. What what did he just say? You know, like, let me reread that. Is that a mistranslation? Or So so there's there's kind of just that naivete, almost like a, a childish, but in a certain way, a more, a more willing to suspend my disbelief. And, and so when I come across a, a, a statement like this, which is really the heart of the book, I organized all the chapters according to this one statement. It's in Bigum 7, 22, where he says, the word of God, God himself wills always and in all things to actualize the mystery of his incarnation. Always and in all things. Mm-hmm. Of course, when I first read that, I'm like, Really? always, everywhere, and always? Is that really what he means? I mean, isn't the mystery of Christ, isn't Christ, isn't there sort of a uniqueness to that? Doesn't that sort of water down the uniqueness of the event and history, right? And so I, I, the more I studied him, I mean, so I'm willing to take that, I'm going to say, well, before I start saying things like, well, that would undermine the, the uniqueness of Christ, let's just think if it really would. Let me, let me look and see what else he does elsewhere. And so I read like his whole corpus. And that's that's partly what it means is to say, actually, there's a profound rigor and logic to this on the one hand, but in a beauty on the other, where this does hold together and no, it doesn't compromise the uniqueness. In fact, the uniqueness is unique precisely in the fact that it can be both particular in history in the middle, right? That pebble again, and also the destiny of all things, as he plainly says that the all the ages and all the creatures in the ages receive their beginning and end right here. So, uh, so that's what I try to do. You've kind of danced around it here, but there is a, a language that we are so accustomed to that we don't have to think about it. Christ is born of the Father before all things, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And we forget the fact that the council wrestled with the right words yeah. to come up with the right thing to say, to perfectly, as perfectly as they could express what they believed about Christ. And so for us, it rolls off the tongue because we've been trained to say it and we have not taken the time to think about why these words, why each of these distinct words in the order that they're written. And I think that's one of the things that reading across the East-West divide does for us, reading into the fathers away from popular books does for us, is it again shocks our sensibilities in the same way that the gospel would have shocked the sensibilities of those who first heard it. That it, it makes us not assume what the author means. We have to go and actually read it and wrestle with it and chew on it and figure out what is being said here and therefore what then are the implications for the Christian life? Which, by the way, just to plug a book, you've got a book coming up, Shadow of Things to Come, Christian Life with St. Maximus the Confessor, which I'm, I assume, given the title, is going to unpack some of these things as well. Yeah. But but it's important for us to be shocked by the gospel and, and by creation and theology so that we can get out of ourselves and our assumptions and look at these paradoxes, which are truly beyond comprehension. And we just do our best to grasp this, this glimpse of the divine. Yeah, exactly. I mean, right. So you say something like born of the father before all ages, God from God, life from my true God. But then you, the very same one, of course, is 
and also in these latter times, born of the Holy Virgin, Mother of God, Mary, right? Right. So, so the same person has two births. Mm-hmm. The same, the same person or figure who he posts us, he's the hypostasis of Christ, the one Lord Jesus Christ, his is born now. It's not like, right? It wouldn't be right to say it's like a succession of births. Like, well, mm-hmm. first he was born here. Well, there's no first before all ages. Right. Right in a not in a sequential sense. So that already ought to disrupt our assumptions, which are what's naturally meant by before. And there's actually a text of Maximus in, in letter 15 is one of the uh, letters I'm translating for that volume, where he at one point he he straight out says the before of Christ is just his divinity, and the mm-hmm. after is his humanity. So, but the, but the point is that he himself is both at once. Well, and for going back to this this idea that in the paragraph around 100 of the Catechism, it repeats from De Verbum that Christ is the single utterance of the Father, who because he's outside time needs no has no need for separate syllables. And so, uh-huh. not only is is Christ born of the Father before all ages, but he is that spoken capital W word through which when God speaks, creation happens. And so, yes. so then we're getting into linear, but we're also still outside of time because there was no time before there was change because cha- uh-huh. time is just the measure of change. Exactly. You could, you could, for example, you go to, you could go to John, like, like it's the same idea. Uh, and actually, ultimately, if, if, if Maximus is right, and at least I'm, I'm getting close to what he thinks, it's actually the same point. Uh, but you can go to John chapter one, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelled among us, right? Again, one of those things we, we say, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know he was, but of course that can't, that can't simply mean whatever else it means. It can't simply mean the word was hanging out for a while through some duration of time with the father and the spirit. And then said, you know, I think I'm going to go down and become human now. And then there's a point on the on some timeline somewhere, which is yet above time, where he then goes down to like another timeline. And it's like all of a sudden he, I think Rowan Williams is the one who said, you know, the word does not have, the, the incarnation is not just another episode in the biography of the word. And Herbert McCabe, uh, Father Herbert McCabe mm-hmm. said similar thing. But it's, um, right. And so what is it, what does it mean for the word to become something that, from the point it's born, say in the first century Palestine, becomes through time. Whatever mm-hmm. that first become means, that transition, whatever that is, I don't even know if that's the right word, transition, it can't, it can't act or function or mean the same thing as, say, for example, when he grew in wisdom and stature, according right. to the Gospel of Luke, right? He, be, he went from age zero to age 12. That transition, that becoming age 12, is not the same thing as it means for the word to become flesh, because the word becomes flesh, which becomes. Yeah. So uh, all this is to say, I mean, I'm not giving much answers here, but I am trying to <laughs> shake. Right, I'm trying to shake up the assumptions, and that's what Maximus yeah. does, I think, for us. And that's what he does for me. Is say, hold on, do you really know what it means for the word to become flesh? Yeah. So help <laughs> us out here because we we obviously don't have a lot of answers, but you've invited us into a conversation. <laughs> Uh, we have your book, which is a, a breakdown and, and a systematizing of trying to wrestle with his thought. But if we wanted to approach his thought uh, ourselves in, hey. in an accessible translation, hey, hey. give us just maybe two two editions. Where do we go to start in, uh, engaging with Maximus the Confessor? 
So as always, I think I think uh, the best place to go is to the man himself. And I think if you're going for one uh, affordable volume, the best one still is um, uh, by the popular patristic series put out by St. Vladimir Sem Seminary on yeah. the cosmic mystery of Christ. Yeah. So you can see it's sort of similar themes that I like to pick up in the book. On the cosmic mystery of Jesus Christ is what it's called. It's a little okay. blue volume. Very cheap, very good. It's a nice spate of, and it has some of the central passages that I've even mentioned here. So good stuff there. Um, I would go there. And then whoever's uh, looking for the kind of more spiritualist, I mean, after all, Maximus is a monk. Right. And he wrote texts that are also for meditation and contemplation for other monks. And and so there you could do, there's two options. One would be the second volume of the Philokalia, the English edition. There's four volumes, so there are five volumes to that now. Uh, the second volume is almost all Maximus uh, writing spiritual writings from him. Or you could go to the classical or Western classic series, you know, they did uh, back in the 80s. Yep. And it's a red volume and it's just called Maximus Confessor, classical, you know, Western classics uh, and spirituality. So I'm going to put links to that up on our social media over at facebook.com slash step outside the wall. So you can get a hold of those volumes, wrestle with them, read them and think deeply on what it means for Christ to be made incarnate in all of the possibilities that flow therefrom. We've been talking today with Jordan Daniel Wood, who is a Catholic theologian, holds a PhD in historical theology from Boston College, is a prolific author and translator. Uh, right now, the book we're talking about is The Whole Mystery of Christ, Creation is Incarnation, and Maximus the Confessor. You can get it on University of Notre Dame Press. We'll have a link to that as well. Jordan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. If you missed any part of my conversation with Jordan Daniel Wood, or you want to go back and listen to it again, or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. If you want more, I've got good news. There is more. Each and every week, we continue the conversation after the broadcast because we, one, we just enjoy the conversation so much, but two, we give that extra segment in gratitude to all those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air by covering some of the costs associated with production, and in gratitude, we give them this extra segment each and every week. To learn more about that Patreon support community and how it works, and to look into those extra uh, goodies that come along with that, that being part of that community, uh, you can go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link there in the middle of the navigation bar to learn more. Now, Let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking the fathers and doctors of the church to Scripture, magisterial documents, catechism, uh, biblical commentaries, and so much more. You can learn more at Verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture today comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Again, that reading comes from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 2. We've read that somewhat recently, uh, and this is just, a, I think, an essential thing for us to grasp, that Christ became like us in every way, out of compassion, out of deep love. Remember, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There's a a theory going around, mainly in Protestant circles, that somehow Jesus Christ was saving us from the Father. But this is couldn't be further from the truth. God, and we see this in John 3.16, God sent his son out of love for us to redeem us back to himself. So, We were being saved from our sins and from ourselves for the Father and not from the Father. Uh, And and so Christ comes and he suffers uh, so that he can help us when we suffer. He is becoming like us in all ways to redeem all things that that we experience. Uh, and, And this is a profound mystery and one that we'll dig into in the coming days. But it's a profound mystery that his incarnation comes out of love for our sake to bring us back into relationship with him. Our reading from church history today comes from St. Maximus the Confessor. This is uh, one of those volumes that he mentioned there in the episode earlier. Uh, This is the one from Popular Patristics on the Cosmic Mystery of Christ. We're actually going to be reading that specific chapter uh, from whence the title comes. Question 73. Of Christ, as of pure and spotless Lamb who is foreknown before the foundation of the world, yet manifested at the end of time for our sake, from 1 Peter, by whom was Christ foreknown? And Maximus answers thus. The scriptural text calls the mystery of Christ, Christ, the great apostle, clearly testifies to this when he speaks of the mystery hidden from the ages, having now been manifested. He is, of course, referring to Christ, the whole mystery of Christ, which is manifestly the ineffable and incomprehensible hypostatic union between Christ's divinity and humanity. This union draws his humanity into perfect identity in every way with his divinity through the principle of person. It is a union that realizes one person composite of both natures, inasmuch as it in no way diminishes the essential difference between those natures. And so, to repeat, there is one hypostasis realized from the two natures, and the difference between the natures remains immutable. In view of this difference, moreover, the natures remain undiminished, and the quantity of each of the united natures is preserved, even after the union. For whereas the union, by the union, no change or alteration at all was suffered by either of the united natures, the essential principle of each of the united natures endured without being compromised. Indeed, that essential principle remained inviolate even after the union, as the divine and human natures retained their integrity in every respect. Neither of the natures was denied anything at all because of the union. For it was fitting 
for the creator of the universe, who by the economy of his incarnation became what by nature he was not, to preserve without change both what he himself was by nature and what he became in his incarnation. For naturally, we must not consider any change at all in God, nor conceive any movement in him. Being changed properly pertains to movable creatures. This is the great and hidden mystery, at once the blessed end for which all things are ordained. It is the divine purpose conceived before the beginning of created things. In defining it, we would say that this mystery is the preconceived goal for which everything exists, but which itself exists on account of nothing. With a clear view to this end, God created the essences of created beings, and such is, properly speaking, the terminus of his providence and of the things under his providential care. Inasmuch as it leads to God, it is the recapitulation of the things he has created. It is the mystery which the circumstance which circumscribes all the ages and which reveals the grand plan of God. A super-infinite plan infinitely pre-existing the ages. The Logos, by essence God, became a messenger of this plan when he became a man and, if I might, may rightly say so, established himself as the innermost depth of the Father's goodness, while also displaying in himself the very goal for which his cre- creatures manifestly received the beginning of their existence. Because of Christ, or rather, the whole mystery of Christ, all the ages of time and the beings within those ages have received their beginning and end in Christ. For the union between a limit of the ages and limitlessness, between measure and immeasurability, between finitude and infinity, between creator and creation, between rest and motion, was conceived before the ages. This union has been manifested in Christ at the end of time, and itself brings God's foreknowledge to fulfillment, in order that naturally mobile creatures might secure themselves around God's total and essential immobility, desisting altogether from their movement towards themselves and toward each other. The union has been manifested so that they might also acquire by experience an active knowledge of Him in whom they were made worthy to find their stability and to have abiding unchangeability in them the enjoyment of this knowledge. That reading again comes from On the Cosmic Mystery of Christ from Maximus the Confessor. This specific edition comes from the popular patristic series from St. Vladimir's Seminary. You can get it on Verbum and uh, as well as many other works from Maximus the Confessor. Learn more again over at Verbum.com. That's all the time we have this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's show is brought to you by Susan Wise and all those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to Outside the Walls, click that Patreon link to learn more. Become a part of the ongoing conversation over at facebook.com slash step outside the walls. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you.
This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.